Okay, chapter 28 is bleeding and soft tissue trauma. Introduction. Bleeding can be a life-threatening emergency. Severe bleeding is controlled during the primary assessment. So again, that's part of our primary assessment is looking for any obvious indications of bleeding. If we see major life-threatening bleeding, we can take immediate action to go ahead and control that as soon as we find that. Most soft tissue injuries are cared for, though, after the primary assessment. If it's not producing massive life-threatening bleeding, then we're not going to deal with soft tissue injuries during the primary assessment. That will oftentimes be done during the secondary assessment. And anytime that we're dealing with bleeding, being able to recognize shock is an important element of emergency care. So external bleeding. When we're dealing with external bleeding, patients bleeding out, it's very important that we always use standard precautions for these patients. Bare minimum, we need to be wearing gloves. And if it's massive amounts of blood, we may want to up our PPE, face uh, shields, uh, eye protection, whatever that case may indicate. And standard precautions, again, are the best defense against the transmission of diseases. The best standard precaution that's going to protect you to prevent the spread of transmittable diseases, again, is going to be hand washing. So we have a patient here that has external bleeding from a soft tissue injury to the head. We notice there's pretty significant amounts of blood on that patient's face. So again, we need to take steps to control it. Big concerns right here, anytime we have head or face bleeding, is, is, it's getting, is it getting into the airway and is it occluding that patient's airway? Severity of blood loss depends upon the follow-up. Biggest factor is oftentimes going to be the amount of total blood loss. How much blood has that patient lost? Another factor is, as well is the rate of that blood loss. How fast did the patient lose that blood? If it's a very slow bleed, it's probably not as, it's not going to be as severe as a very rapid bleed. What other type of injuries or pre-existing conditions does our patient have? What other type of medical problems does the patient have? Patient's age is going to play a role in this as well. Again, the elderly patients especially do not compensate or deal, do very well with major blood loss. And oftentimes we may not see that puddle of blood or in us as EMS providers and healthcare providers in general, we have a bad problem of overestimating the blood loss that we see uh, if it is pooling, et cetera. So the best way to roughly estimate how much blood the patient has lost is by assessing the patient's signs and symptoms and estimating it based on patient presentation. So class, when we're dealing with hemorrhage, there's different classes of hemorrhage, and that class is based on how much blood has that patient lost. So a class one hemorrhage, the patient has lost less than 15% of their total blood. So the patient is going to present in a class one bleed as elevated heart rate, blood, body is trying to compensate, trying to drive and increase that blood pressure by releasing epinephrine, nor epinephrine. So the patient's body is going to have that vasoconstriction, again, trying to drive and increase that blood pressure. Ventilatory rate is going to be relatively normal. 
systolic blood pressure is still going to be normal, pulse pressures will be normal, and the skin may be normal or starting to get slightly pale and cool, not really diaphoretic or sweaty yet. Class 2 hemorrhage is 15 to 30%, higher heart rate. Again, body's still trying to fight it, so we're getting even more vasoconstriction. At this point, ventilatory rate is likely going to start being elevated. Systolic blood pressure is still narrow. Pulse pressures, I'm normal, I'm sorry, pulse pressures are now starting to narrow, and the skin is now starting to get cool and clammy. The patient is going to start sweating. Class 3, 30 to 40%, significant increase in heart rate. Again, the body's still trying to compensate, so we're getting even more vasoconstriction. Ventilatory rate is going to be faster. Systolic blood pressure is now starting to drop. Pulse pressures are going to be narrow, and they're going to be severely pale and cool and clammy as well. And class four is over 40%. At this point, the heart rate still, the body may still be fighting, trying to compensate, so the heart rate may be extremely high. Or now it's starting to fall back down as the body's not realizing it cannot compensate or the compensatory mechanisms are totally failing. Vasoconstriction is going to be the same way. It's either going to be very high or they're going to start opening back up. Ventilatory rate is going to be extremely high. Systolic blood pressure is going to be very low. Pulse pressures are going to be very narrow or now they're actually starting to widen out as well. So based on that, we can determine Class one and class two, patients should be in compensated shock. Class three and class four, the patient's likely going to be in decompensated shock. Again, that biggest factor is going to be the blood pressure. So in class one, class two, blood pressure is normal. That means they're in compensated shock. Class three or class four, we have a falling blood pressure. That's going to indicate that they are in decompensated shock. So when we're dealing with bleeding, there's three types of bleeding, that external bleeding that we can come across. We can have arterial bleeding. Arterial bleeding is described as being bright red in color, and it is also spurting. So every time that patient's heart beats, that blood spurts out of that open wound. We can have venous bleeding, which is classified or uh, described as being dark red in color. Color alone, you're not going to be able to determine the difference. But it's not going to be spurting. It's going to have a steady flow out of the body. And capillary bleeding is dark or uh, intermediate red and is oozing. It's not have a steady flow. It's not spurting. It's just kind of oozing out. And capillary bleeding is going to be the least severe. It's also going to be the easiest to control. So again, arteries, bright red spurting. Veins, darker red, uh, steady flow, and capillaries are, are slow, uh, oozing, very slow flow possibly. So if we have a patient that has major bleeding, we're going to have to take steps to control it. There are four main steps or methods that we use to control external bleeding. The first thing that we're going to do, our go-to, is going to be to apply direct pressure over the wound. We're going to get our hand, and we're going to place it over the wound and try to hold it, stop it, by just putting pressure on it. If direct pressure doesn't work and it's on an extremity, our next option is to go straight to a tourniquet. 
Other techniques that we can use, we can splint an extremity as well. And we'll talk about these individually. But splinting actually helps reduce blood flow to that extremity, which in turn decreases pressure inside those arteries, which allows that opening to have a better opportunity to clot. We can also use topical hemostatic agents as well. We can also, it's not listed in the slides, but wound packing is starting to become more and more common as well. So the steps, how we're gonna apply direct pressure or uh, control external bleeding. Again, that first step is going to be, we're gonna apply direct pressure over the wound. That may be with a gloved hand and a four by four directly over, which is a sterile dressing and putting using mainly fingertip pressure to hold that opening. We also may be able to use or apply a pressure dressing as well, where we are wrapping up that dressing or it comes as a unit where the device or the technique that we're using is holding that direct pressure. So we're not having to sit there throughout the entire transport holding pressure. If it's on a extremity, direct pressure, pressure dressings aren't working, now we can, or it's obviously it needs it, we can go directly to a tourniquet if it's on an extremity. Tourniquets can't be used. We can consider the use of hemostatic agents. Things like Quick Clot is the most common brand out there. And if multiple patients are hemorrhaging, for example, mass casualty incidents, school shootings that we're going in on, et cetera, we can skip those other steps and we're going to go and apply directly or go directly to a tourniquet. Again, that's just going to tie up hands or free up hands, skipping those other steps. It may not, in most cases, wouldn't need a tourniquet, but since we have 30 patients we're having to triage and deal with, we may just go directly to that tourniquet to ensure that we are going to stop bleeding. So direct pressure, it's the first method to, that we use to control bleeding. Not only is it the first, in vast majority of situations, direct pressure is all that is needed. We can get the vast majority of injuries, uh, we can get them to stop bleeding with just direct pressure alone. We apply a pressure dressing. A pressure dressing can be applied to the wound to control bleeding if there are multiple wounds that require attention or we just want to free up our hands. We don't want to sit here and hold that extremity or the axial regions for long periods of time. We can just put a, a pressure dressing on it and that will hold it that pressure for us. If we're dealing with an impelled object, patient was stabbed and a knife is still sticking in their chest or sticking in their arm, we do not remove impelled objects. That can actually make the bleeding worse. So impelled objects in most situations are going to stay in place. So we're going to stabilize those impelled objects, but we want to avoid putting any pressure driving that impelled object in any deeper. So here we have a decent uh, injury to the patient's forearm with decent bleeding occurring. So we're gonna go about trying to stop it. Again, our first technique is to apply direct pressure. So we get a stack of four by fours and we put it over the wound. And again, we're gonna use fingertip pressure over that wound as well, holding those four by fours to it to see if we can control the bleeding that way. If bleeding does not stop, 
we and we don't think we're able to get enough pressure because of the four by fours, et cetera, we can remove those four by fours and go directly into that wound with just our fingertips. So we again, we're just kind of getting rid of the gauze. Pack large gaping wounds with sterile gauze, apply direct pressure. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, wound packing. Uh, ultimately, you need to follow your protocols when it comes to wound packing. Typically, we do not wound pack injuries to the chest or the abdominal cavity. It's a cavity. And if it's penetrating all the way through and we keep shoving gauze, we're shoving and filling the abdominal organ or the abdominal cavity with gauze. So where we typically wound pack is, again, in kind of in those axial regions, in the neck, in the armpits where a tourniquet or in the groin area where a tourniquet will not fit. Tourniquets. Tourniquets are used when direct pressure does not control bleeding. So again, we try direct pressure. Direct pressure is not working. The injury is on an extremity. We need to up our game. We're going to go to a tourniquet. We only use tourniquets on the extremities. Tourniquets aren't going to work anywhere else on the body except for extremities. There are several types, different types of commercial tourniquets on, on the market. There's at least four or five that are relatively common. Uh, we'll talk about probably the most common one coming up, though. If we don't have a commercial tourniquet on our truck, or say we're dealing with a small pediatric where a commercial tourniquet's not small enough to fit the pediatric, you can make your own tourniquet as well with uh, supplies and equipment that we have in our ambulance. A couple examples of a commercial tourniquet. I'm not sure exactly what type this is. I've never seen one of these on an ambulance. These are not very popular at all. This one right here, like Howard is holding up, is a cat style tourniquet. This is probably the most common popular brand on the market. Very simple to use. You can apply it to yourself one-handed if you need to as well. And most EMS agencies are going to carry these. So again, we have a forearm lack or wrist lack on this guy. He's got pretty significant bleeding. The first thing we're going to do is apply direct pressure. When direct pressure doesn't work, this crew member is holding that direct pressure. It's bleeding through. It's continuing to bleed. It's not stopping. Now we need to apply a tourniquet. While we're getting that tourniquet ready, though, the other person, again, still needs to be holding direct pressure. We want to apply the tourniquet proximal to the wound, but not over the joint. So there's two trains of thought about tourniquet application. One of them, like the textbook is talking about, is just two or three inches above the wound, but not directly over a joint. So in this case, it was lower risk. They're going to put it on the patient's forearm and tighten it up. The other train of thought is high and tight. It doesn't matter where that injury is located on that extremity, we're gonna put that tourniquet up as high as we can get it and tighten it up right there. Textbook says this way, for me, for class, I do not care which technique that you use. It's either just above or up high and tight. I don't care. So we apply it again above the wound and we need to pull it hand tight. 
And that's the most, the number one reason why a cat style tourniquet is going to fail on you is we do not pull it tight enough by hand before we start spinning the windlass system or the rod. So you need to make sure it is extremely hand tight. We also do not want that the strap on it to twist or bend or rotate. It needs to be laying flat against the patient's skin. Once we have it hand tight, we're going to twist the rod to tighten the tourniquet until bleeding is stopped and there is no palpable pulses distal of the tourniquet. And both of those things need to occur. We need to A, stop the bleeding, but we also need to ensure that we are totally cutting off circulation to that extremity. And the reason being is if we are allowing circulation to patients as a real pulse, which one are we going to cut off first? Are we going to cut off venous bleeding first, that are the veins, or are we going to cut off the arteries first? Which one do y'all think we'll cut off first? Veins. Veins. Veins are more superficial than arteries in most cases. So if we tighten it just till we stop bleeding, but we don't have pulse, but we still have pulses, I'm sorry, we're still allowing blood to enter that extremity, but we've totally occluded it from draining out of the arm. So if we do that, we're very likely going to cause compartment syndrome in that extremity, and it's going to be very painful and cause permanent tissue damage to the patient as well. So more moral of the story, when we put on a tourniquet, we need to stop the bleeding and patient needs to lose distal pulses. Once we, that occurs, now we are going to secure that tightening rod into that little housing that's right there. Put the Velcro on it to make sure it's not going to slip out. And then we're going to write the time that that tourniquet was applied. And most of the cats have an actual place on that strap to where we write the time. Uh, leave the tourniquet. We'll always leave the tourniquet exposed to view. We never cover, or we should try to really avoid covering a tourniquet. So when we cover that patient with a blanket, we need to make sure that we're still leaving that extremity, that tourniquet exposed. That way, anybody that looks at this patient should be able to clearly see, hey, this patient's got a tourniquet in place. Uh, make sure that we notify the receiving facility that a tourniquet has been applied as well. We don't want them to forget that the patient has a tourniquet on and let it go there longer than it was necessary. If we do not have a commercial tourniquet, again, we could very easily make one from equipment that we have on our trucks. Easiest way to do this is to get a triangular bandage. So we get a uh, fold a triangular bandage to four inches wide. Luckily for us, our triangular bandages that we buy come pre-folded. So it, we just open it out of the package and it's ready to go to make a tourniquet. It needs to be wide though. We don't use things like very skinny belts, especially wire or other material. If it's too thin, it's actually gonna start cutting and digging into the skin. So it needs to be fairly wide. We're gonna wrap the bandage around the extremity where we want to apply the tourniquet. We wrap that bandage around the extremity and then we tie the bandage to the extremity. Once we tie that knot, then we place a sticker rod on the knot tie the ends over the bandage, the, of the bandage over the handle. So we're just making a makeshift handle and then spin it just like we did the windlass system on the cat tourniquet. Twist the handle to tighten the tourniquet until bleeding stops, pulses are lost. Hardest part of doing a makeshift tourniquet is after we have it applied, 
is securing that handle so the handle is not going to undo itself. Another technique that we can use that's oftentimes easier is just use blood pressure cuff. Pump the blood pressure cuff all the way up is pretty high until we lose radial pulses, go up 20 millimeters of mercury above that, and now that should be a pretty sufficient tourniquet. The problem with using a blood pressure cuff is they're not designed to hold that much pressure for long periods of time, so it's probably going to leak. So we need to constantly monitoring it, making sure that it is not leaking. Again, making that tourniquet, we get a triangular bandage, tie it to the arm, the extremity, place a stick or something, shears, even a thick pin could work possibly over it, and then tie the knot onto that and then twist it. Again, the hardest part about a makeshift tourniquet is after we uh, spin it enough to cause it to be a tourniquet, how do we secure this stick without it loosening up as well? So key points on tourniquet. Again, by textbook, we want to place it as close to the wound as possible, on the proximal side of the injury, but we do not apply it directly over a joint. And again, for class, I do not care if you want to go that method or if you go high and tight, it does not matter. We need to follow protocols on loosening of a tourniquet. That used to be an old school train of thought that if we were going to have very long transport times with patients, 30, 40 minutes, every 10 or 15 minutes, we would loosen the tourniquet and then tighten it right back up just to ensure that the tissues that we're restricting or cutting blood flow off is still getting some oxygen sporadically throughout transport. Again, that's more of an old school train of thought. We generally nowadays, once we apply a tourniquet, we do not take the tourniquet off. It should not be loosened until we get to the ER. Again, if a tourniquet is applied, that tourniquet needs to be fully exposed in an open view. So again, anybody looking at the patient can see that the patient has a tourniquet on. And during our reassessment, make sure that we are continuously looking at that extremity, looking at that injury to ensure that we are still controlling bleeding and that that tourniquet has not loosened uh, on us during transport. Again, another technique that we could possibly use in order to help control bleeding is by splinting that extremity. So it can be an important way to reduce bleeding from an injured extremity. And the thought process behind this is splinting will prevent movement of the extremity. If we're not using or moving that extremity, that's gonna reduce the blood demand that is required in that arm, that extremity. So blood is actually gonna reduce, be reduced. It's not gonna be flowing as much. And that's gonna allow the clotting function to work a little bit better. Traction splints, we'll talk more about traction splints once we get into musculoskeletal injuries, but traction splints are only used on mid-shaft femur fractures. Again, remember our principles of trauma, though, the platinum 10, et cetera. We're not going to waste time on scene splinting a non-life-threatening injury if we have an unstable trauma patient on scene. Again, the focus is ABCs, life-threatening threatening injuries, load and go. If major traumas, again, if we have time during transport, now we can go back and splint that extremity to help reduce bleeding. Hemostatic agents, things like quick clot agents can be used when direct pressure is ineffective. 
and on an area where a tourniquet cannot be applied. And these hemostatic agents promote blood clotting. So it's a chemical, it has a chemical reaction that's supposed to help with the clot. Generally, they're reserved for long transport times. Again, follow your protocols. And they're typically not the most effective on arterial bleeds because of the pressure behind that arterial bleed actually blows the chemical out. So quick clot typically comes in two separate types or two different types of forms. The most uh, one type is a dressing that's already impregnated with the hemostatic agent. So they have, it looks like Curlex, a roll of Curlex or four by four maybe that already has this quick clot kind of mixed and woven into it. The other type is just a powdered form that we pour directly into the wound. That's not normally used very frequently in EMS. And if we are using quick clot hemostatic agent, we do have to apply direct pressure for about three minutes after using it just to ensure that we're giving that quick clot an opportunity to work. And again, there are different brands out on the market, but quick clot is by far the most common. And again, there is the top that we tend to carry, which is that dressing that's impregnated with that chemical. So junctional bleeding control. Junctional areas are where the extremities in the head meet the torso. So again, we're talking about the necks, we're talking about the armpits and the groin region. Again, with these junctional areas, they cannot apply a tourniquet. There are devices that our military has been using. We are starting to see them make their way into the civilian side. I could, we could buy one right now from the medical catalog, but they're like $300 a pop, single patient use. Uh, and direct pressure and hemostatic agents and wound packing are currently the technique to control bleeding in those junctional areas. So our assessment-based approach for external bleeding. Again, external bleeding is easy. Direct pressure in most cases doesn't stop it on an extremity, go directly to a tourniquet. So our assessment-based approach for external bleeding, start with your scene size up. Again, we wanna make sure that the scene's safe for us. We are wearing our PPE. Again, if we're having major bleeding, spurting blood, do face protection, eye protection. Because again, if you get blood in your eye, that is an exposure. You can catch communicable diseases through blood getting in your eyes or, or mouth. Looking at the mechanism of injury or nature of illness, if it's a medical, determine the number of patients and assess the need for additional resources and request those early on. Moving to our primary assessment, we're gonna assess the airway and breathing. Again, we're now we're moving into the trauma section, so our O2 SAT goals are going to be a little different. Now our goal for O2 SATs is at or above 95%. Remember, with trauma, we go to non-rebreathers, and we're not so much worried about over-oxygenation for trauma like we are in medicals. So 95% is the goal, and again, we go to non-rebreathers, high flow of 15 liters per minute. Assess the pulses and scan. Control serious bleeding, but do not let dramatic injuries distract you from the rest of your primary assessment. Again, we can control major external bleeding as soon as we find it. 
we approach, we see a major bleed, we can take immediate action to correct it. Again, just again, it says do not get tunnel vision. We at some point quickly still need to go back and assess, go through the rest of that primary assessment as well. Secondary assessment, we're going to perform a rapid secondary assessment if, again, that's based on oftentimes mechanism of injury or the seriousness of the patient. So if we do have serious major bleeding, go ahead and do a complete head to toe. Altered mental status, which is always considered a critical trauma if we have an AMS. Multiple injuries, significant mechanism of injury as well. And remember, Rapid secondary assessment is that complete head to toe. A rapid secondary assessment, complete head to toe, should take less than 90 seconds unless we find a life-threatening injury that must be corrected during that secondary assessment. So it's very quick in most cases. And again, the only time it's going to slow down is if we find something life-threatening that needs to be addressed immediately. And again, when we're doing a head to toe assessment, especially on traumas, we're looking for DCAP BTLS. Again, what we're looking for, most beneficial for trauma patients, D's deformities, C's contusions, A's abrasions, P is penetrations or punctures, B is burns, T is tenderness, L is lacerations, and S is swelling. Again, those are the trauma injuries that we're looking for during our head-to-toe assessment. Continuing on with our secondary assessment, remember the first full set of vital signs are done during our secondary assessment. Talked about before about approximate blood pressure can be attained by assessing the pulses. Studies are showing that's not very accurate. However, full blood pressure may be performed en route to the hospital in unstable patients. We still do that. Again, our focus is not getting a blood pressure on scene. So we do full vital signs, including our blood pressure, should be done after we load the patient and begin transport to the hospital. So in major traumas, we start our secondary assessment on scene with our rapid secondary assessment, and then we load and go, and we complete that secondary assessment at the early steps during transport. Again, full set of vital signs, for example. And again, during our head-to-toe assessment, while we're checking vital signs throughout the entire time, we're assessing for those signs and symptoms of shock. Care for external bleeding, maintain airway ventilations. Again, primary assessment still going to be priority. We're going to maintain our pulse ox at or above 95%. If we do have major external bleeding, we take actions to control it immediately, starting with direct pressure. If direct pressure doesn't work and that wound is on an extremity, go to a tourniquet. If we know that the patient is showing signs and symptoms of shock, we're going to treat for shock. How we treat for shock? High flow O2 for trauma shock, especially. Non-rebreather 15 liters per minute. Proper positioning of the patient. It's going to be either laying supine or in shock position with feet elevated. Other than that, we're going to keep the patient warm and it's going to be rapid transport to the hospital. And again, part of that shock treatment, especially very critical for traumas as well, is we have to ensure that we are maintaining warmth. 
Major trauma patients showing signs and symptoms of shock, they need to be covered with a blanket. Immobilized injury, injured extremities as manpower and situation allow. Again, that can, again, if it's not life-threatening, we're not doing that on scene. We're going to be doing that in route to the hospital. A big exception to that is hip, pelvic fractures, and femur fractures. Those do need to be treated and immobilized before we move the patient. Those type of injuries, pelvic fractures, femur fractures, those can cause life-threatening bleeding. So we do address those in our rapid secondary assessment. Do those, treat those on scene before we load and transport. Most other extremity fractures though, are not treated on scene. Those will be treated en route to the hospital. Again, we'll talk more about that in musculoskeletal injuries. And again, rapid transport for major trauma victims, either significant mechanism of injury or the patient's obviously critical. We have that platinum 10 on, again, seriously injured patients. So limit your on-scene time to 10 minutes or less. And consider ALS backup. They can start IVs. They can maintain airway. UMC EMS is just moved. They are carrying whole blood on their Fox trucks now as well. So if the patient's candidate for whole blood, request that, that resource early on. Reassessment en route to the hospital. We're going to reassess vital signs every five minutes if the patient is unstable. And again, during transport, we're monitoring our interventions as well, making sure that our dressings are holding in place. The pressure dressings are still holding pressure, that our tourniquets are still uh, reducing circulation, still controlling bleeding, and pulses haven't regained. And just be aware, say we applied a pressure dressing to the patient, it wasn't to the point where it needed a tourniquet, so we just put pressure dressing. As that injury, that injury goes on longer, it's going to begin to swell. So a very tight pressure dressing can easily turn into a tourniquet as that patient's arm or leg begins to swell. So we need to ensure that we're not accidentally causing a tourniquet. So if we, after we bandage, check distal pulses, capillary refill, uh, continuously monitor those to ensure that the swelling is not causing a tourniquet. So bleeding from the nose, ears, and mouth. Things that we could indicate if we see that, things that may be going on within the body. It can be a skull injury or it could be just facial trauma. It may be digital trauma to the nose. What is digital trauma to the nose? Anybody know? Nathan? What, what are your digits? Um, your fingers. Yeah, so a kid or adults picking their nose went into the caused a nosebleed. Sinusitis, just inflammation inside the sinuses. Hypertension can cause nosebleeds, and those are some of the worst nosebleeds I've ever seen in my life, is running on an older person that has pretty high blood pressure, and they are bleeding heavily from the nose to the point where it's damn near causing shock. Or clotting disorders, maybe they're a hemophiliac and they just bleed easily. Esophageal diseases as well, those esophageal varices that we mentioned that can cause major bleeding from the mouth and nose. We do not attempt to, this is very important, we do not attempt to control bleeding from the ears or nose 
if the patient has experienced a head injury. And the reason being is there may be uh, cerebral spinal fluid that is mixed in with that bleeding. And if we stop the cerebral spinal fluid from leaking from the ears or nose, especially, now we're increasing the pressure with inside that skull, putting a lot of pressure on the brain, causing further brain damage. So we're going to catch it, collect it, but we do not want to stop that bleeding from occurring. Epistaxis is the medical term for a nosebleed. We control epistaxis with direct pressure. And again, epistaxis, nosebleeds can cause hypovolemic shock if it is severe enough. So for a nosebleed, we, when we, you're trying to control a nosebleed, we want the patient to sit and lean forward. I know when I was growing up, just kind of seeing it on TV and so forth, they were, I always saw them tell them to lean the patient's head back. We don't do that. We want the patient to actually lean forward. And we're going to pinch the soft part of the nose shut. We're going to we can get four by fours under the nose to collect, but we're just going to get our fingers and we're going to pinch over the soft part of the nose. And we're going to hold it there. We can use ice packs or cold packs on the nose or cheeks. That can cause vasoconstriction, which may help with the clotting. And once we start holding pressure, we need to hold pressure for about 10 minutes before we let go to check to see if we stop the bleeding. If after 10 minutes we do control the bleeding, we want to inform the patient not to blow their nose for 12 hours after the bleeding is stopped. If they try to blow their nose or sniffle real bad like that, they may suck in that clot and the whole bleeding process is going to start all over again. So again, have the patient sit, lean forward. Using four by four, catching the blood under the nose, and we're pinching the nostril. If we have an adult patient that's following our commands easily, have the patient hold their own direct pressure. Just instruct them what to do, tell them not to let go. So we we want them to lean forward, and we do not want them to swallow the blood that's probably running down the back of their throats as well. Blood is a gastric irritant. If they swallow enough of that blood, they're probably going to vomit. So don't tell them not to swallow it. Give them an emesis bag in front of them with that four by four and have them spit uh, any blood that they can that's running down the back of their throat into that emesis bag. If they're bleeding from the mouth, biggest concern from bleeding from the mouth, again, is going to be an airway uh, concern. They may aspirate that blood. So again, if blood is filling up the mouth, they can't clear their own airway, clear it for them. Use suction. Depending on where the bleeding is coming from, et cetera, we may need to apply dressing inside the mouth to control a wound if it can safely be done where the patient, we don't have to worry about the patient aspirating or choking on whatever we're putting into their mouth. So they need to be able to follow our directions. Internal bleeding may result from trauma or medical problems. Patient may have gotten into a car wreck, broken. Uh, broke their right lower ribs, then lacerates their liver. So now we have major internal bleeding from a liver lack from trauma. Or again, it can be from medical problems as well, especially things like a GI bleed. Big thing that we need to note about internal bleeding is, A, there's nothing we can do for it. And B, is it can be very lethal, life-threatening, but may have very obvious, I mean, very subtle 
signs. We may not, I mean, if we can't see any external bleeding, so it may not be obvious to us, but again, it can rapidly result in death. That's why it's important that we do not get tunnel vision and we do a good thorough assessment, paying close attention, especially even to the abdominal region of the patient as well. Severity, common sources of internal bleeding are injured organs or fractured extremities. This can produce hematomas. A hematoma is a contained collection of blood underneath the skin uh, that can contain a significant amounts of blood. So it, uh, hematoma is just pooling of blood underneath the skin and it, lead, it causes a knot on the patient's skin. So everybody ever get hit in the head or seen a kid with hit in the head and they have that big old goose egg? That's a hematoma. Again, use signs and symptoms like we previously talked about to estimate the severity of the blood loss. We're not seeing the actual bleeding in most cases of internal bleeding. So how we're going to estimate how much volume the patient has lost is by looking at those signs and symptoms like we've discussed earlier. So if we have a trauma victim or a medical victim, patient is showing signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock, but we don't see any outward indications of a bleed, especially true for a trauma. We need to start thinking, hey, this patient's probably bleeding somewhere internally. So they're showing signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock from a major trauma, but we're not seeing where they're bleeding from. They're probably bleeding internal. So our assessment-based approach for internal bleeding, again, we start with our scene size up, safety, mechanism of injury, number of patients. Primary assessment, again, ABCs, O2 sets at or above 95. Pulse, skin, capillary refill, again, looking for those indications of shock. And pay close attention to changes in the respirations, pulse, and skin that may indicate blood loss. Secondary assessment, again, major trauma. We're going to go ahead and perform our rapid secondary assessment, our head-to-toe, looking for any indications of internal bleeding. We're also going through our DCAP BTLS. Patient's conscious and talking to us, make sure we get a full history. And again, secondary assessment in route to the hospital is when we get our first full set of vital signs, including blood pressure. So things that may indicate internal bleeding, pain, tenderness, swelling, discolorization of sites of the injury. Assessing the stomach, we notice bruising or swelling, tenderness into the abdominal region during palpation, all may indicate may indicate internal bleeding. Bleeding from the mouth, rectum, vagina, or other orifice. Dark, tarry stools and uh, melana. Again, that's not going to be a trauma indication. That's probably going to be a medical symptom or vomiting of the blood, hematemesis. Rigid, tender abdomen. When we palpate that abdomen, it feels very firm to the touch. It's not nice and soft, or it's tender upon palpation. We see deformities to the pelvic. Again, pelvic fracture is a big concern with the pelvic fracture. Why we consider a life-threatening injury is because of the major internal bleeding that can occur from it. Major damage to the thorax or femur fractures, again, big concern is going to be bleeding. Or any other signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock. Restlessness, anxiety. Alter mental status. Again, that restlessness, anxiety are often the first indication of early shock. Weakness, fainting, dizziness, excessive thirst, 
rapid shallow breathing, rapid thready pulses, cool clammy skin. Again, it's important that we are able to recognize shock when we see it. Delayed or slow capillary refill, those narrowing of the pulse pressures. Remember, the falling blood pressure is a late sign of shock, and that indicates that move from compensated to decompensated shock, nausea and vomiting. And if, once we start depriving the brain of good supply of oxygenated blood, we can get dilated sluggish pupils as well. Care for internal bleeding. It's going to be nothing but supportive. There's nothing that we can do to control internal bleeding. Sub, uh, ABC, primary assessment ABCs keep O2 sats at or above 95. If there is external bleeding associated or with that internal bleeding, we can go ahead and control external bleeding as well. Immediate transport, consider ALS backup. Again, and then treatment for shock. Proper positioning, high flow O2, keep the patient warm. Rapid transport to the hospital. Again, consider ALS throughout transport, continuing ongoing care for shock, keeping the patient warm, high flow O2, proper positioning of the patient, rapid transport. With internal bleeding, we're probably going to go ahead and consider that patient unstable. So we're probably going to be reassessing vital signs every five minutes. And if we haven't already done so or we're ready to go, we can consider meeting an ALS provider en route to the hospital. But we do not want to delay our scene time waiting for an ALS provider to get there. Once we're done with what we need to get done, we're ready to transport, start transporting. If the ALS provider is not there, have them meet us somewhere en route to the hospital. Okay, any question on first? Some factors that may actually increase bleeding in our patients and things we need to try to avoid. avoid. Things like the patient movement. Movement of the patient over that, that wound, that cut, whatever the case may be, that's going to help disrupt the clotting process. It's one of the reasons why splinting can also help as well. Immobilize it, prevent it from moving, and can allow that clotting to work better. Lower body temperatures. Again, that's one reason why we want to try to avoid hypothermia in our patients is because that actually slows the clotting process down. And certain medications can also inhibit clotting. Things like if the patient's on blood thinners, NSAIDs, aspirin, all can play a role or prevent clotting from happening normally. Other factors include things like getting too much IV fluid. And this is something at the advanced and paramedic level that we do need to be cautious of. Increasing the blood pressure puts more pressure behind that bleed, and that can actually break clots free. Not only that, it dilutes the blood, and normal IV fluid does not replace those red blood cells uh, so there is a limited ability to carry oxygen. And again, by giving them too much fluid, we're, we could potentially make that worse. Or once we apply dressings or bandages to the patient and we keep constantly pulling them off and removing them, it can remove clots with it as well. Those bandages that we're using, it's designed to give something for that clot to start forming too. So if we have that four by four on there and we remove it, we may be pulling off part of that clot 
causing it to bleed for longer. So hemorrhagic sh uh, shock. Shock, again, results from inadequate tissue perfusion. That's what shock is. Significant hemorrhage leads to shock, inadequate perfusion. And again, that is the most common type of shock that we deal with is hypovolemic shock. For trauma, it would be hemorrhagic hypovolemic shock. During shock, cells are deprived of oxygen and nutrients and begin to fail and die. And again, for shock, being able to immediately recognize that that patient is going into shock and trying to take some steps to prevent it or slow the progression at least is going to give the patient the best chance of survival. So take steps to control and maintain external bleeding. Other than that, it's those supportive measures, high flow to keep the patient warm, position, rapid transport. So the cycle of uh, continuous cycle of shock, trauma gets involved. Then we have a loss of blood volume from the vascular space, decreasing cardiac output and pressure in the aorta, carotid, peripheral arteries. This decreases the delivery of oxygen and glucose to the cells, the removal of carbon dioxide. Barrel receptors trigger uh, hormone release. Sympathetic nervous system is stimulated, so the body's releasing epinephrine, norepinephrine to increase cardiac output, blood pressure, perfusion. Heart rate contractility increases, again, just like we talked about with epinephrine getting used. Urine output decreases in an attempt to compensate and increased cardiac output. Uh, patient exhibits tachycardia, weak peripheral pulses, decreased mental status, tachypnea, pale cold clammy skin, continued volume loss, overwhelms compensatory mechanisms, blood pressure falls, tachycardia, tachypnea further increase, peripheral pulses are extremely weak or absent, mental status deteriorates. So again, this right here is where the patient moves from compensated to decompensated shock. At that point, the brain becomes ischemic, the medulla fails, causing a severe drop in perfusion and blood pressure. Patient becomes unresponsive. Heart rate severely increases and then drops dramatic, uh, dramatically. Blood pressure decreases significantly and may not be obtainable. Respiration is decreased and become inadequate. And further decrease in blood volume, perfusion, and blood pressure leads to brain tissue death, multiple organ failure, and eventual uh, uh, patient death. So again, your body's going to try to compensate. Once your body starts failing, con fails to compensate, moves into decompensated shock. Once we start depriving that brain of oxygen, the brain is going to start failing, which in turn is just going to make that decompensation uh, decompensation go faster because the brain's no longer able to try to help and regulate what's going on in the body. So sound and symptoms of hemorrhagic shock, things that we're looking for. Again, mental status changes, decreased peripheral perfusion, things like slow cap refill, weak distal pulses. Vital sign changes, we're starting to see those narrow pulse pressures. Again, initially, we're going to see tachycardia. That tends to be very weak and thready as well. The diaphoretic skin, pale, cool, moist skin, dilated pupils, nausea, vomiting, and excessive thirst as well. So our treatment for hemorrhagic shock. We're going to primary assessment, make sure our ABCs are taken care of. If the patient is not breathing adequately on their own, poor rate and or poor tidal volume, we're going to assist ventilations. 
And very important that we immediately control major external bleeding when we see it. Again, we can also splint those injuries as appropriate. That's going to help with bleeding. Place the patient's supine, treat for shock, high flow O2, cover the patient with a blanket to maintain body temperature, and rapid transport to the hospital. Again, major, all we're really going to be able to do is going to be supportive measures, controlling external bleeding, taking care of those ABCs, treatment for shock, rapid transport to the hospital. <clears throat> So again, make sure that we're taking all of our standard precautions. You notice patients in shock, they get placed on supplemental O2, trauma shock, again, especially non-rebreather. Patients not breathing adequately on their own. We assist their ventilations with the BBM. Take steps to prevent the body uh, loss of heat. So cover the patient with the blanket and then rapid transport to the hospital. Soft tissue injuries. <clears throat> when we're dealing with soft tissue injuries, they can either be classified as closed or open. The appearance of soft tissue injury can be uh, dramatic, but again, do not get distracted from your priorities of care. Even though it looks bad, again, it may not be life-threatening. Don't forget to complete the rest of your assessment. And dressings and bandages are used to help control bleeding and prevent further wound contamination. So when we're dealing with soft tissue injuries, we're talking about injuries to the skin. So the skin, functions of the skin include protection, uh, protects the body from the environment, from external organisms, gives, it's that barrier layer. It also helps... Can y'all still hear me? I just got a message that I'm signed out, which is weird. Helps regulate body temperature for the patient as well. Again, it provides our senses, senses heat, cold, touch, pressure, pain, and assists in the elimination of water salts, mainly through sweating. Remember those layers of the skin. We have the epidermis, which is the outermost layer. Then we have the dermis, that inner layer. And the innermost layer is going to be that sub-Q layer. So again, these tissues or these injuries can be classified as open or closed, dealing with closed soft tissue injuries first. When we say there, it's closed, it's telling us that there is no break in the skin. So there's no open cut uh, or so forth. And there are three types of closed soft tissue injuries include contusions, which again, we've talked about. Contusion is just a fancy medical term for a bruise. Hematomas, which again is just pooling of the blood underneath the skin. And crush injuries as well. So contusions, again, it is a bruise. It's injured to the blood vessels in the dermis, but again, it does not break the outside of the skin. During contusions, you get redness, 
discolorization, black and blue discolorization. You also get swelling, and that black and blue discolorization is referred to as ecmosis. Hematomas, they involve larger blood vessels and tissues, tissue areas than a contusion. And again, what a hematoma is, is a pocket of blood beneath the skin. And as that, that pocket is large enough, it can actually start separating those tissue layers as well. Hematomas present as a lump with discolorization. Most of the times they're pretty small, but they can get fairly large. And if you have a hematoma the size of the patient's fist, that can roughly equal 10% total blood loss, causing minimal signs and symptoms of hypovolemic shock. Again, the vast majority of hematomas you're going to see tend to be very small. Crush injury results from significant blunt trauma or a crushing force. And crush injuries can both be open and or closed as well. And serious damage can happen from that crush injury to the underlying tissues and even internal organs, depending on which body part is crushed. So if it's in the trunk and the torso or in the, the abdominal region, internal bleeding and ruptured hollow organs are possible as well. So our treatment for a closed soft tissue injury, most of the time these are pretty benign. They're typically not that worrisome, and we typically don't do much to them. So treatment for a patient with a closed soft tissue injury is going to be supportive. Focus on the primary assessment, your ABCs. For things like crush injuries, especially if we do note signs and symptoms of shock, treat for shock. If there's any suspected fractures below that crush injury. Splint the suspected fractures, and then just reassess and transport the patient to the appropriate facility. Again, supportive measures are all we're going to be able to do for closed soft tissue injuries. Open soft tissue injuries, on their hand, we are going to be able to treat those a little differently. So in an open soft tissue injury, there is a break in the continuity of the skin. So there's a external wound that we can visualize. When we have these open wounds, we're worried about a couple of things. The main thing that we're worried about that's going to kill the patient quickly is if there is major external bleeding associated with that open wound. Not only that, we also need to concern ourselves with possible contamination. Remember, the skin is that barrier from our internal body to the outside environment. So if we have that break in the skin, now organisms, dirt, debris can get into our bodies. And one thing we have to worry about with open soft tissue injuries are going to be infections. And an open injury may be a sign of a deeper underlying injury. So again, just make sure that we're doing a good thorough assessment. So the different types of soft tissue injuries, we have abrasions, lacerations, avulsions, amputations, penetrations or punctures, things like gunshot wounds, stabbings. And again, we've already mentioned crush injuries can be open as well. So we'll go through these individually, starting off with abrasion. Abrasion injuries are caused by scraping or rubbing away 
of the epidermis. So I think we mentioned this before, things like a carpet burn, you fall down and skin your knee, that is an abrasion. Injuries tend to be very superficial, but can be pretty painful for the patient. And we see this a lot of time in people that are ejected from a vehicle, motorcycle, and they have, if it's covering a large, abrasions covering a large area of the body, we tend to refer to it as road rash. Since it is a superficial injury, bleeding is normally pretty easily controlled. Direct pressure is all that's going to be required to control the bleeding. The abrasion may not even be bleeding on its own uh, by the time we get there as well. Again, since big concern is not going to be bleeding, since it's so superficial, uh, one of our primary concerns is going to be infection. So we still need to take the time to bandage or cover these injuries to prevent any further contamination from getting in there. So a couple of examples of abrasions, both light and deep. Now, I've never seen abrasions that deep in a patient before. Those are some crazy type of abrasions. But these are the type of abrasions that we tend to see. So this patient had blunt force trauma to his face. It looks like he was punched in the face. So we see the abrasions right here on his chin, or his cheek, sorry, his other cheek, and even his forehead. And all it is is just, again, scraping or rubbing away of that epidermal layer. Again, in this case, the Abrasion is nothing that worrisome, but we're kind of also worried about, well, did he break his, any bones in his face, et cetera. Here, again, we're going to worry about what's deeper than those abrasions. We're also going to be worried about how deep that is, is going to be infection. This, I'm not worried about infection. That is extremely superficial. So I'll probably, me personally, I'm not even going to cover that and run to the hospital. <clears throat> Laceration. Laceration, again, is a break in the skin. These are like cuts. They may be linear or stellate. Linear uh, lacerations are have regular, very smooth type of cut caused by sharp objects. Like if you were slashed with a knife, that would probably call it, that would cause a linear laceration. A stellate laceration is irregular, and these tend to be caused by more than more like blunt force trauma. Patient was struck in the head with a baseball bat, and now they're bleeding from the head. It's probably going to be more of a stellate laceration. Depths of lacerations may vary. They may be very superficial, like a paper cut, very superficial laceration, very small laceration, or they can be extremely deep as well. And there is a possibility of significant bleeding. You can rupture uh, arteries, veins with a deep laceration. So these are both those stellate type of lacerations, very irregular. Again, this patient either fell or struck with something in the head, blunt force trauma, and you notice it's not a nice, smooth, straight cut. Same thing down here, this is blunt force trauma to the lower extremities. It looks like they were probably pinned between a vehicle or something uh, crushed uh, their legs is what it looks like. Again, not, not regular, not nice and smooth, very irregular type of laceration. Avulsion is a flap of skin is torn loose or pulled off completely. Depending on the depth of an avulsion, bleeding can be very severe. Commonly see this in machinery or motor vehicle collisions. 
And since a flap of skin and meat is missing, again, it's kind of a wide gaping wound in many cases, healing can be prolonged and scarring can be extremely extensive. A common example of a very minor avulsion can be things like skin tears, where that layer of skins is kind of separating and flapping over. Older people, patients, older patients that are on blood thinners are very prone to getting things like skin tears. Amputations, it's a disruption in the continuity of an extremity or other body part. And amputations result from ripping, tearing forces, depending on what part's amputated, circumstances around that amputation may have very minimal or can have massive bleeding. And amputations may be partial where it's still hanging on, but barely, or a complete amputation where that extremity is completely separated from the rest of the body. An example of some finger amputations. So here, that distal end of that finger was amputated, missing, and you can see those fingertips that are missing right there. Penetrations, punctures. Injury results from sharp pointed objects being pushed or driven into soft tissue. Entry wound may be very small, but the underlying damage can be severe. So a small pocket knife externally may look very minimal. You just see a nice little inch and a half, two inch slit in the patient's skin. But if it was stabbed, it could have gone deep, causing damage to blood vessels, to major organs. So just because it looks pretty minor externally doesn't mean it's a minor injury. It could be a lot could be going on deeper into the body. Gunshot wounds, again, stabbings, those are all types of penetrating injuries. Again, knife injury is also penetrating and may be hidden. Again, very minor, minimal external signs, but some may have major damage going in deeper. So there is a penetrating wound to the chest. Again, looks like a gunshot wound to me. Again, externally from the this side anyway, doesn't look too severe, relatively small opening. But again, there could be massive, extensive damage inside the body. And remember, gunshot wounds, they are going to have that pressure wave that's following you, that cavitation, so major damage can occur. Crush injuries. The affected part may be painful, swollen, deformed, and bleeding, again, can be either minimal or completely absent or heavy. Again, there may be internal bleeding, internal damage as well. And shock can develop rapidly when the crushing object is lifted off the patient. That crushing object may kind of act as a temporary tourniquet. That crushed injury, that injury is pinning the patient to something and it's compressing and pressing down on those arteries, those veins, and that's preventing bleeding from occurring. But when we remove that object, all of a sudden those blood vessels 
don't have that pressure on them and they may start bleeding and they can bleed very quickly and heavily. Very minor or say relatively minor, but it's crush injury to the hand. Looks like they got their hand pinned into something. So yes, we have external damage breaks in the skins, but internally that hand where it was cr crushed is probably broken in multiple places as well. Other types of soft tissue injuries. Bites can be classified as soft tissue injuries as well. Dog bites can be complicated by infection, cellulitis, septicemia, concerns of rabies, tetanus, and human bites can result in infections and hepatitis as well. Uh, bites generally a combination of both a penetrating injury and a uh, crush injury at the same time where the jaws, the teeth break through the skin, but those claws clamp down, causing a crush style injury. And scene safety is going to be a big concern. If a dog is running around that just attacks somebody and it's still on scene, we do need to be cautious, making sure animal control or law enforcement is going with us to take care of that dog to protect us from getting bit as well. Same thing with human bites. We wanna make sure that the human running around biting people is not a danger to us. So dog bites to the woman's face. You can kind of see, got a hold of her on her cheek and pretty much pulled down that skin. That would kind of hard to see still picture, but that does look like a little bit of an avulsion as well because that skin got kind of pulled and flapped off. I uh, was at the hospital when a little girl, probably seven or eight, maybe even younger than that, came in with a dog bite to the face where it actually punctured into her sinus cavities. And you can look in there and see the hole of that sinus cavity. It was pretty, pretty intense. Clamping injuries, body part is caught or strangled in machinery. Injuries often include finger or hand that they reach into something and it gets held on to. So they're trapped or stuck if they, they may be possible that they're trapped or stuck. And as more time goes on, more swelling is occurring to that extremity or to that hand that is trapped. So it's going to be harder and harder to free the patient from that entrapment. If that's the case, we may be able to get the patient's hand or arm free using things like lubricants. Uh, fire department tend to have tend to take the lead in these type of extrications as well. And if we can't get that extremity unstuck, we may, if we can possibly, consider transporting the patient with the clamping object in place. We may need to disassemble part of the machinery that the hand is trapped in in order to get the patient to the hospital. And that's happened many of times. We've, they've either cut or removed part of the machinery. It's still cut on the patient's arm, but at least they removed it enough to where we can transport the patient and that piece of machinery to the hospital. Example of that clamping type of injury to the back of a hand. So our care of open or soft tissue injuries, we wanna ensure an open airway, adequate breathing and oxygenation. Again, our primary assessment is not going to change. 
Again, during that primary assessment, we major note major bleeding. We take immediate actions to go ahead and control it. If we're gonna can't treat what we can't see, so if we notice blood on a clothing, expose that wound. We also need to take steps to prevent further contamination. So we talked about how we control bleeding, put that sterile dressing, that four by four on it, apply direct pressure. That sterile four by four, putting that over the wound is also going to help prevent contamination as well. Dress and bandage the wound, keep the patient calm. Again, if there's major bleeding, major injuries, if we note signs and symptoms of shock, treat those signs and symptoms of shock, rapid transport to the hospital, and depending on situation, we may need to consider ALS backup and support as well. Some special care, special care considerations. We're going to treat these type of wounds differently. And we'll go into a little bit more detail when we get into, say, chest trauma uh, in a few chapters. But if we're dealing with penetrating chest wounds, we have to treat those differently. Penetrating or open abdominal injuries, impaled objects, amputations, or large neck injuries as well. So penetrating chest injury. How we treat a penetrating chest wound differently is these type of injuries require occlusive dressing. And occlusive just means airtight dressing. Uh, so it requires an occlusive airtight dressing to prevent air from entering the chest cavity through the, the wound. One type of occlusive dressing that we may use is just Vaseline gauze, which is basically what it sounds like. It's a four by four that's slathered in Vaseline. What we're starting to see more and more on ambulances, ambulances now, though, are chest seals that are specifically designed for chest wounds. If we are using Vaseline gauze, we need to tape down that uh, occlusive dressing down on three sides. By taping it down on three sides, that allows air to escape the chest cavity, but prevents air from getting into the chest cavity. And a good rule of thumb is we're going to bandage all open chest wounds with an occlusive dressing just as a precaution. Not even, even if it's not getting air into the pleural space, we need to go ahead and bandage it with a occlusive dressing just for safety. And again, we'll talk more about that once we get into chest trauma. But again, occlusive dressing just means airtight. Vaseline gauze is a type of occlusive dressing. Plastic makes a very good airtight dressing. So in this case, we have the occlusive dressing for a large chest injury, and they have it taped down on three sides. Again, that will prevent air from getting sucked into the chest with each breath, but it will allow air to still escape when the patient is exhaling. Abdominal injuries. In certain situations, we have to treat those differently as well especially if the patient has an abdominal evisceration. An abdominal evisceration is when organs protrude through the abdominal wall. Most superficial organs in the abdomen, it's going to be the intestines. So the vast majority of the time we're talking about intestines are protruding through the abdominal wall. So if we know the patient has an evisceration, we're not going to try to touch or try to shove back in 
those organs. We're going to leave them in place. How we're going to manage, manage it, we're going to cover the organs with moist, sterile dressing. And then on, on top of that, the moist, sterile dressing, then we're going to put on occlusive dressing like plastic. Flex the patient's knees and hips if they are uninjured and no spinal immobilization is required. We want to try to take off some of the pressure, the pressure off of those abdominal muscles. So by having them draw their legs up or bend forward a little bit as well, that's taking that pressure off those abdominal muscles. The general rule for bandaging is if it's normally dry, we keep it dry. If it's normally wet, we're going to keep it wet. So the skin is normally dry. So anytime we're bandaging the skin, we're going to cover it with dry, sterile dressing. In this case, with an evisceration, the abdominal organs are normally kept moist inside your body. So we're going to keep them moist as well. So there's an example of what an abdominal, an abdominal evisceration can look like. Again, there's a cut in the abdomen, and somehow the uh, intestines have gone through that hole. So again, first thing we're going to do is we're going to get a large bulky dressing, like a trauma dressing, which all trauma dressing is, is a bulky, large dressing that's sterile. And we can soak that with sterile water or normal saline, lay that on top of the organs directly, and then we can get plastic occlusive dressing and tape it down on top of it. Since we're not dealing with a chest injury in this case, we're not worried about only taping it down on three sides. So in the abdom abdominal region with occlusive dressing, we can tape it down on all four sides. If we're dealing with impelled objects, as a general, general rule, we do not remove an impelled object. We leave it in place unless it is in the cheek or neck and it's obstructing air, airflow through the airway. In that case, we can potentially move the impelled object. Now to me, if a patient's got a knife sticking in his neck into his trachea, homeboy's probably dead. I'm, if he doesn't have a pulse, I'm probably calling him dead because to me, that's an unsurvivable wound. Um, but if it's in the cheek, they're still awake and talking to us and then the pencil or pencil in the cheek, we can go ahead and remove and pull that out. We do need to control bleeding. If it's not in the cheek or in the neck and blocking or obstructing airflow, we stabilize the object in place, utilizing bulky dressing. So we're just gonna leave it in place, pack four by fours, roll curl X up around it, try to hold it in place best we can and don't let it move. So again, in this case, we have a pencil in the cheek. This is an example of an impelled object that we can actually remove. So we can pull that the pencil out and then bandage the wounds. In this case, there's going to be two wounds. There's going to be an external wound and a wound inside the mouth that we have to worry about as well. In this case, we have an impelled object, a knife in the patient's upper leg. So in this case, we're not going to remove this knife. We want to leave the knife in place. So we're going to immediately hold manual stabilization. We're going to pull that skin around that object or hold that skin around that object firm still to prevent it from moving around. In this case, patient's conscious following commands, we can let the patient do it for us. 
We're going to cut the clothing away to expose the injury. And then we are going to stabilize that knife in place. They just got, it looks like stacks of four by fours that they put on either side of the knife. And now they're rolling it up with curl X. Again, no right or wrong way to do it as long as we are stabilizing it and preventing it from moving around. If we're dealing with an amputation, some amputated parts can be reattached to the patient if the patient and the part is cared for properly. And our priority is still always going to be first and foremost, the patient's life, not so much the extremity. So while we're taking care of the patient, we're running through our trauma assessment, going through our ABCs, et cetera, have other people on scene look for that missing part if the missing part is not there with patient. And if we can, we should transport the amputated part and the patient together. So we go through our assessment, found the amputated extremity, whatever the case may be, ex amputated extremity and the patient should go to the hospital together. However, if the part is can't, can't be found, we're not going to delay transport time or on scene time for the patient waiting around to hopefully find their arm or leg or whatever the hell it is. So whenever we're ready to load and go with the patient, we're going to go ahead and go. We can have other crews remain on scene looking for that amputated part. And if they find it, they can bring it to the hospital a little later on. So if we do find that amputated part, again, we do need to care for it to give it the best possibility of being reattached. We want to remove any gross contamination for it. Again, get your sterile uh, water or your saline and rinse off that amputated part, try to get as much of that dirt debris uh, off of. Then we want to wrap uh, the, the amputated part in dry, sterile gauze. And then if we can, we want to wrap or place the amputated part in plastic. And then we need to try to keep the part cold. So if we have a cooler, fill it with ice. We want to put the part on the ice, but we do not want to pack it into the ice. So we'll set it on top of the cooler of ice, not, uh, again, pack it in there. We don't want to allow any part of that uh, amputated part to freeze, because if it freezes, that's lessening the likelihood of it being successfully reattached. And we should never purposefully complete a partial amputation. So if the guy's arm is cut off almost all the way through and it's hanging on by just some skin and some fat on one end, we're not going to go ahead and just go ahead and re fully remove that, the rest of the arm. Do what we can, try to keep it in place best we can, splint it, bandage it, whatever we need to do, rapid transport to the hospital, but don't intentionally uh, complete a partial amputation. So again, we found the amputated part, we cleanse the site, wrap it in dry, sterile dressing, then try to put it in plastic or wrap it in plastic, then put it on ice, but not in ice. We do not want it to freeze. Again, that other type of soft tissue injury that we have to treat with a little bit differently is open neck wounds. So remember, in your neck, you have very large blood vessels. You have carotid arteries. You have your jugular veins. So bleeding may be very severe. 
And another concern on top of major external bleeding with neck wounds is air, because those neck veins are so large, those neck veins can actually suck air into a vein, causing an air embolism, where air is starting to circulate throughout the body. Air, air embolisms can be fatal. So if we're worried about air getting into that opening, we're going to cover it with an airtight dressing. And again, an airtight dressing is an occlusive dressing. We also need to be cautious on applying too much direct pressure over a neck wound because we don't want to choke the patient out or totally occlude blood flow to the brain. Again, careful to avoid direct pressure over the trachea. And if we do need help holding direct pressure to a neck wound, a C-collar is a really good tool. That C-collar can be placed on there and that can actually hold our dressings up against the neck. So there is an example of an open neck wound. You know, this, that is very linear, very, very straight. So it's probably cut with a sharp object. Now, in this case, it doesn't look like any veins are involved. So we're probably not so much worried about a, a sucking neck wound or an air embolism. But again, just kind of like the chest, just as a precaution, any large neck wound, we do need to go ahead and cover it with an occlusive dressing. So airtight dressing. and again very similar to the abdomen. We're not worried about air being able to escape. We just don't want any to get in. So we can go ahead and tape that dressing on the neck all four sides. We don't need to tape it just on three. It can be taped down with all four. All right, moving on, talking about what the tools that we can use to bandage a, uh, a bleed. So we have dressings and we have bandages, and there is a difference between the two. So dressings, they cover the wound to help control bleeding and they prevent further contamination. So it is the dressing that should be making the direct contact with the open wound. <clears throat> so since it's the one that's making the direct contact, the dressings need to be sterile. And there are various types of dressings available. We have gauze pads, four by fours are the most common size. You can see two by twos as well. We have self-adhering dressings, multi-trauma dressings, and again, those occlusive dressings or those airtight dressings. So some examples of the types of dressings that we can have. Again, here are your gauze pads. You can have four by fours, two by twos. Uh, there's a trauma dressing. So again, it's just a very large sterile dressing. We can use this for very large wounds. So if we have a patient that has road rash all over their body, not so much worried about direct pressure. We just need to cover it. We can open this trauma dressing, spread it out as far as we can, and just use it kind of like a blanket over the patient as well. Occlusive dressing, again, we have uh, Vaseline gauze as a type, which is just a four by four soaked in Vaseline. And it, if that's the dressing, it will always come in this uh, aluminum foil type of packaging. But we can also use plastic. So we may have sheets of plastic that we carry in our trucks. 
We have Ziploc bags that we could possibly turn into it. Now, these aren't going to be sterile, but it's better than nothing. Even things like the bags that our BBMs come in or our nasal cannulas, we can cut those down and use those as, as an occlusive dressing if we need to. So a dressing goes directly against the wound needs to be sterile. Bandages, on the other hand, they're used to secure the dressing. So it's the bandage that holds the dressing in place. Now, they, they don't have to be sterile, but they do need to be fairly clean and free of debris. Various types, self-adhering bandages, roll, uh, gauze rolls, or curlex is probably the most common type of dressings that we use, or bandage, I'm sorry. Triangular bandages, air splints. So non-elastic self-adhering dressing, roller bandages, again, it's just we can wrap this around the patient to hold our dressings in place. Triangular bandages, again, they can be folded in a certain way into what's known as a cravat. Again, for us, we buy ours already folded, and we can use those to tie to the patient's area to hold it in place as well. So some examples of different injured body parts and how we could potentially bandage them. So again, if we have a head injury up here, four by four would go over the injury, and now we can use the bandage to hold it in place. If it's the eyes, similar technique. The golden rule of bandaging eyes, if we bandage one eye, bandage both eyes. And we'll talk about that once we get into eye injuries. Head or ear bandage, again, very similar technique. There's no right or wrong way to do this as long as you're accomplishing holding pressure and making sure it's not gonna slide out. Cheek bandage, again, can be used for the ears as well. Hand bandage, shoulder bandage, foot, ankle bandage. Give me one second. Foot and ankle bandage, knee. Now with knees, especially especially larger joints, they should be cautious because anytime they move or bend that knee, that dressing is going to want to slide around. So what I like to do, especially for a knee, I'll wrap it up just like this, but then I'm probably going to throw some tape at the top and the bottom just to hold it in place to prevent it from sliding around as much. So applying a pressure dressing. Again, this is going to be putting pressure so we don't have to sit there and hold it. Cover the wound with the sterile dressing first. Apply direct pressure over the wound to control the bleeding. And we want to bandage firmly to maintain bleeding control. And we want to reassess pulses, again, to make sure that we're not cutting off circulation. So when we bandage, we want to check pulses before, make sure pulses are good first, then we'll go through our bandaging, then we'll check pulses again just to make sure that we didn't, again, accidentally create a tourniquet if we didn't want to. If blood soaks through our dressing, remove the dressing, apply fingertip pressure. 
So general principles of dressing and bandaging, again, sterile materials are going to be preferred, especially the dressings that are making contact with the wound, they do need to be sterile. Don't apply a bandage until bleeding is controlled. And that, then at that point, the bandage is holding the dressing in place. Again, there are some exceptions to that. If we have multiple wounds or multiple patients, we may have to apply a pressure dressing while it's still actively bleeding and hoping that works while we treat other patients. Dressings should cover the entire wound. Again, we need to remove all jewelry from the injured part. Try to do that before swelling starts because we, if swelling gets so severe we can't remove it, then we may have to go back and cut their jewelry off. And we don't need to bandage too loosely. It's got to be tight enough to hold it in place. And if it's a pressure dressing, it's got to be tight enough to actually be holding direct pressure over the wound as well. So it does need to be snug, but not too tightly. Again, we don't want to accidentally create a tourniquet. If wound is small, we'll use a wider bandage to avoid creating pressure points. Again, kind of like I talked about with the knee, any movement is going to loosen and stretch out those bandages over joints and it may slip off. So position the part, how we're going to transport the patient before bandaging. And if bandaging and dressing doesn't control the bleeding and it's on an extremity again, then we can move to a tourniquet. So in summary, Hypoperfusion shock can result from blood loss. Remember the three types of bleeding, external bleeding are arterial, venous, and capillary. We can have external or internal bleeding. And that first step of controlling external bleeding is going to be direct pressure. Do not let the appearance soft tissue and distract you from the priorities of patient care. Again, I've said this before, the most grotesque looking injury is normally not what's going to kill the patient. It's going to be that injury that has a very subtle presentation. So do not get tunnel vision. Dressing and bandages are used to help control bleeding, prevent further contamination of wounds. And tourniquets and hemostatic agents are only used if direct pressure is not effective for ongoing significant bleeding. Again, in most situations, a tourniquet is not our go-to first-line use. Mass casualty incidents is a different beast, but we should always, in most cases, we should try direct pressure first. If that doesn't work, if it's on an extremity, then we move to a tourniquet. And bleeding control, shock management, 